Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. Today's guest is a former designer from Apple who is now the executive director of the Stanford Design Program, and he teaches a hugely popular course called Designing Your Life. His name is Bill Burnett, and he's the co-author of the book, Designing Your Life, How to Build a Well-Lived, Joyful Life. Bill has taken the principles of design that he learned at Apple and now teaches at Stanford, and he helps people apply them to designing their life. We learn about the importance of curiosity and how to cultivate it, why bias to action is so critical when it comes to designing our lives, the role that prototyping plays in helping us move forward towards our best life, why finding our passion is hard, but following our energy is easy, and how following that energy can help us build a better life. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Bill as much as I do. My friends, I bring you Bill Burnett. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real-Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well-lived. Welcome to The Good Life. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Maybe we can start with this wildly popular course you teach at Stanford, where you help students design a well-lived and joyful life. And one might think that a course like this would be in the psychology department, you know, drawing on positive psychology and happiness research. But this course is in the design program, and you're helping students to apply the principles of design to build the best version of their life. Can you expand on that? Uh, mostly I teach classes to young designers, graduate and undergraduates, who want to learn how to design new to the world things, things that have never existed before. When you're inventing something new to the world, you don't have any data about what the world wants. You kind of know what people need, but you don't really know exactly what the final solution is going to be because it's new, right? It's never been done before. It's innovation. It's very carefully worded. It's to build a joyful life. It's designing your life, how to build, not how to invent or how to think up or how to plan. It's how do you build it? Because when there's no data about what the world wants or needs, you still have to kind of explore and experiment. And so you build a lot of prototypes. When we were doing the very first laptop at Apple back in the 90s, nobody knew that you could put the keyboard in the back and the trackpad or the trackball in the front. I mean, nobody had ever invented anything that was that small and that amazing. And John Krakauer actually just built a lot of prototypes and came up with that idea. But we build two things. David Kelly, our senior professor, the guy who founded IDEO and the D School, will say we build things to think about things and to ask questions. So it seemed clear that all the ideas that we use to innovate in products and services and experiences, so what I normally teach my students to design, could be used to design the joyful life. And you didn't need to be a design student to do that. We have students from every major take the class and they find it useful. What are some of the concepts you teach during the course? We teach them how to brainstorm, how to mind map, and how to really have lots of ideas. And you mentioned positive psychology. There is a class in positive psych over in the psych department, and it's called the happiness class or something. And they have one at Yale, very famous. And they're coming at it from the psychology of happiness, or what Martin Seligman now calls flourishing. And we use a lot of Martin Seligman's work and Chuck Sentmahai's work on flow and Dan Gilbert's work on decision-making from Harvard. And Dan Goleman, the guy who wrote the book, Emotional Intelligence, we use that research to inform the stuff that we do in the class and to come up with our exercises. 
But it is all basically still a design-based class where you come up with lots of options and you build your way forward. You try stuff because it's out in the world where we discover what does the world need and what am I good at delivering and what I want to do is something the, need, the world needs. That's how you launch. That's how you figure out what you want to do in the world. What I really love about the book is it's not just theoretical. It's giving the reader very, very practical advice that you can apply to your own world. And it reads almost like a how-to book, how to design a life based on this design thinking. And I'm a novice to design thinking. I, I read about Kelly and incredible products that have been designed through these principles. So maybe we could talk a little bit about some of those principles and how they apply to design their life. Because you talk about curiosity, this idea of bias to action. Exactly. We call those the mindsets of a designer. So I can teach you the process, which is start with empathy, talk to people, find out what they need, and to find the problem. Typically, the client always has the wrong problem, right? They always come in with something that's poorly framed or it's too small or it's not, never going to work. So talk to people, come up with a good reframe of the problem, come up with lots of ideas, and then build and test, build and test. So that's the process. But more in the class, we lean on the kind of like, all right, think like a designer. So how do we think like a designer? When a designer starts a problem, they start with curiosity because they don't know the answer and they don't need to know the answer because they're going to move into this ambiguous space of the future. And curiosity, we, we all have curiosity. We were curious as children. David Kelly wrote a book called Creative Confidence, which is this idea of reclaiming our curiosity and our creativity that kind of maybe got beaten out of us in high school or something. Half of what I do is just reawaken you know, curiosity in my students. So you start with curiosity and then this mindset of bias to action, like, what's the point of planning? You don't have any data. Let's just go try some stuff. And then that's radical collaboration. We collaborate with the world. You're not going to solve the problem sitting in your, well, socially isolated COVID world. You got to talk to people, get out in the world and collaborate. Curiosity, bias to action, radical collaboration. And then it's this two magic mindsets are reframing and prototyping. Prototyping is the build your way forward. This is a conversation. We're having a little prototype conversation. You're learning about design. You may resonate with something I say and decide to try it. Or let's say this was reversed. And I was thinking like, I wonder what podcasting is like. And I call you up and we have a conversation. I'm time traveling into a possible future of me by talking to you about what you like to do. So a conversation can be a prototype, trying something, or what we call mocks and walking, or try something for a day, doctor, shadow somebody for a day. A little harder to do right now, but you can do it. There's all sorts of ways you can prototype stuff before you try it to find out if it's going to be a good fit. I'm really intrigued about prototyping. It's a design principle I think lends itself very well to designing our lives. So I want to come back to it, but let's keep going. You mentioned the other mindset of reframing. What's that? Reframing is if you can't solve the problem, pick a better problem. Designers love constraints. And right now we've got this really weird constraint of gosh, we can't be physically in the classroom with our students. That's really been tough. And I've had to redesign all my classes for the spring quarter. But one of the things that's true about this, it's also true that in this period where lots of people are home staring in front of the screen, I can get almost any guest I want to come to class. I had the head of all global IBM design, Phil Gilbert, come to class and spend a wonderful hour with the students just being kind of gracious with his time and giving them advice about career and design. And I don't know, for years I've been trying, even though I worked at Apple and I had some connections, I've been trying for years to get Johnny Ives, the head of the studio, come to class. Never happened. Last week, Johnny came to class, spent an hour with my seniors. He was incredibly gracious, incredibly kind. 
And here they are speaking to the former head of the premier design company on the planet, the guy who works side by side with Steve Jobs to invent everything in their lives, the iPhone, the iPod, the iPad. And he spent an hour with him because he could zoom in from his home in London. Wow. So the constraint of requiring your course to be delivered online leads to the opportunity of Joni Ive visiting your course. So with every constraint, there's probably an upside. Every problem, even when you have a lot of resources, every problem has some kind of constraint. And in fact, I would argue, if you don't give designers some constraints, they'll never finish anything because you can always make things better. One thing I noticed about the book is it's not an advice book. It doesn't tell you what to do. It doesn't give you advice. And maybe you could talk about that. Why is that? Dave and I have an absolute rule. We don't should on our students. No shoulding in the classroom. We don't tell you what you should do. We don't actually give you advice. Advice meaning like when someone says, hey, Sean, you know what I would do if I were you? What they're actually saying is what they would do, not what you should do. (laughs) So that's not what we do. But we ask interesting questions like a mentor would ask. A student will come to me and maybe have a hard problem they're trying to work on and I have two options. And we talk about the options. And then I just reflect back to them what I hear and help them make their best decision. I'd like to get a little more granular especially with those first two steps of being curious and a bias to action, which leads to prototyping. I love the idea of prototyping. When I'm designing something physical, that's what I love to do. It goes back to building with Legos when we're kids. It's like, let's just dive in. Let's put the box together. And we have that natural curiosity as children. But when you think about your own life, first of all, the stakes are pretty high. I mean, we tend to put a lot of pressure on ourselves. We got to be happy. We got to have the right life. We only have one shot at it. And it makes it a little more challenging. So how do we channel that curiosity and how do we prototype on our own life? When we were kids, that wasn't so much of a problem. We had more curiosity than we wanted to do with them. We could turn anything. We could turn a stick into a rocket ship. We could turn a box into a playground. And somewhere along the way, through middle school and high school, we were told to get serious and you know, pay attention and sit down and shut up. And if you were a fancy young boy, you were told you were a problem because you couldn't work in that kind of an environment. So we believe, and I, and I seriously think it's true, that our natural curiosity gets suppressed. It gets suppressed. Partially, we do it ourselves because we want to fit in. We don't want to be different. We want to fit in. We want our friends to like us. And partially because grown-ups told us to stop acting that way. <laughs> and we wanted to please our grown-ups or we were afraid. So what we notice and what the psychologist will tell you is true is that although you used to have access to that kind of stuff, you had access to this curiosity just inherently wanted to try things and figure them out. And that meant building things and interacting with the world. And yeah, I made the Lego thing that they had in the box and made my own thing, which was even cooler. And the reason we don't do it is fear, right? We've been taught fear and the fear suppresses our creativity. So you have to sort of think about when you want to get started and you're procrastinated or when you want to get started and you say, I don't have any ideas. What's really happening is the fight, flight or freeze response is triggered then you don't really have that much access to your creativity because you're worried that you might do something wrong, you might do something stupid, or you'll make a mistake, or it won't work. But designers make hundreds and hundreds of mistakes along the way to making the iPhone. They made 300 prototypes of the iPhone, 299 of which were garbage. Thomas Edison says, I I know 10,000 ways not to make a light bulb because he prototyped just the material science of trying to figure out how to make a light bulb. So first, we've got to learn how to move into the space of creativity by lowering our fear. And and I will argue that courage is action in the face of fear. It's not 
you know, if you read about courageous people who did something in a battle or you know, saved a child from a rolling car or something, they were terrified when they acted, but they acted anyway because they felt that they had to, something they had to do. So curiosity is about courage. It's about having the courage to try something new with the understanding that it might fail or maybe even it will likely fail, but that's okay. For me, it helps that you call it prototyping because a prototype is not a final product. It's going to have flaws. It's not going to be perfect. Once we test the prototype, we'll see the flaws. And if we can channel that curiosity, we'll have the courage to build the next prototype and and get a little closer to our goal. So you got to get courageous. You got to get over your fear of being stupid or dumb or wrong. You got to build up what we call failure immunity. Just it's okay to fail. You're supposed to fail lots in the beginning of any kind of a design, including your life design. And I fail in a sense of I tried something, it didn't work, but that's not a failure because the reason I'm trying stuff is I'm asking interesting questions. I'm asking questions about my future that might lead me to something new. And so most of those will be dead ends or they will result in me finding out that that's not something I'm interested in. It's not a failure. You didn't design a failed prototype. You just learned something. So if we can reframe early failures into learnings, and if we can reframe bias to action, it's not just like stabbing out in any direction, but kind of listening to your own internal self, listening to your emotional intelligence and your cognitive intelligence, and finding your way forward by moving from here to the next experience and the next experience, and each time extracting and what did I learn? So wherever you want to start, whatever project you want to do, you just start and maybe you have to take a deep breath and hold back a little bit of that fear. But trust me, creativity is such a fun state of mind that when you can find it again, and everybody's curious about something. Could you provide an example of a situation where someone channels their curiosity and finds the courage to build a prototype in their life design. What does that look like? A bunch of my friends are, you know, retiring and they're trying to figure out where they want to live. And I say, well, don't just pick someplace and go there, prototype it. And how do you do that? Go get an Airbnb in Santa Fe and, and hang out for a month and see, and don't be a tourist. That's not prototyping. Every place is fun when you're a tourist. Get an Airbnb in Santa Fe. And then Live there for a month as if you were there. Imagine yourself having lived there, having sold the house and all the other things, not even Santa Fe. And what's it like to go to the grocery store? And who do you talk to? And where are you going to find your new friends? You're free to move past the fear because everything is just an experiment. And hopefully an informed experiment that leads you to a little bit better future. The other thing is our technique is really simple. Set the bar low. If you read any of the literature, of behavior change, psychology of behavior change. Our colleague, B.J. Fogg at Stanford just wrote a book called Tiny Habits. It's the whole methodology of you make changes in small increments. It takes about eight, 10 weeks to establish a new habit or to get rid of an old habit. You have to have an incentive and a trigger and you got to get rid of the things that make you, you know, fall back into your old habits. And he's got a nice little model for that. But it's basically start slow, right? When I think about my own career, I have built prototypes. I didn't know they were prototypes at the time, but I'll, I'll give you one example, writing. I used to enjoy writing in college. I took creative writing courses. I took philosophy. I got stories published in the school literary journal. But all the grown-ups around me said, don't be a writer. You can't make money at writing. So of course, I go off in another direction. I study math and computer science and 
But all along, I can't get away from the writing. There was something in me that wanted to write, that needed to write. And along comes the internet and this tool called blogging. And I took it up. I started a blog. Looking back on it, it's exactly what you call prototyping, Bill. If I go back and read those early blogs, they're, well, they're not very good. But at the time, the bar was low. I just wanted to get something out there. And it led to a number of doors opening in my career. It led to my podcasting. Podcasting is another prototype in my career. And as I reflect on the lesson that I took away from all this, I don't think I prototype enough. You encourage people in the book, try new things, learn, experiment, prototype. And your book left me wondering, what am I missing? Because I don't do this. Well, and also, uh, I mean, I would argue that you did a couple of things really well. You were intuitively competently moving towards something that would work. Most of the successful entrepreneurs I know, for instance, don't like have an idea and, and then quit their job and go do it. Most successful entrepreneurs I know can't not do their idea. It's like, look, first of all, I can't work for this corporation anymore. I hate it. So I'm quitting. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. And then I've got this other idea. And every day I wake up and I think about this idea and I can't not do it. It's not like it's a compulsion. And it's also a recognition that they suck at being an employee. Those are the best entrepreneurs, not people who have some starry-eyed dream, because they're all in because they have to be, right? Now, you went to school and people told you something that was logical, but dysfunctional. You can't be a writer and you can't be a philosopher. Math is a good subject, study that. And maybe you were even good at math. So you said, okay, well, I'm good at this. I can do it. But somewhere in your can't not category was, I can't not write. I got to write. And then an opportunity came to do that. That was low stakes, low threat. So you were able to try it and then you got better and then you got better and then you got better. And then in writing turned into podcasting. And so it's like, look, that's how we don't believe in follow your passion because the research says less than 20% of the people have any single identifiable passion. And most people say, I don't know, or I've got lots of things. I'm sure it's not a good way to organize your life, but we do believe in living passionate, living into the things you're curious about, living into the things that give you energy. Why we do the energy map. I really like the concept of living into the things that give us energy. I can relate to that. And you make a very interesting observation in the book. You say, if we pursue the activities that interest us and give us energy, doors will open. We'll eventually find a way to add value to society. Can you talk about that? Once you get invested in something and you explore it passionately or with a biased action, which means like motion, let's get something done here. You start to discover the things that you're not only good at, but the things that the world needs. That's the sweet spot. Just because you want to do it doesn't mean the world needs it. But if, if there's some way you can connect that thing you like to do to something that the world needs, i.e. might pay you for, or at least acknowledge and listen to you, then that's great. And some things you don't want to get paid for because I'm, I'm an artist. I'm a painter. I have a studio four blocks from the house. I want to paint what people want me to paint. I'm going to paint whatever the hell I want. Now, maybe somebody will buy it. I don't know. That's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because it has to get done. This painting has to get done. They're weird. They're strange. They're, they're, I'm not sure anyone's going to like them. I mean, I, I will certainly try to sell them, but I'm not going to paint dogs playing poker on black velvet just because that sells. No way. I didn't know that was popular. <laughs> Evidently, when I look on the internet, that seems to be the only like pictures of dogs, pictures of cats, pictures of horses. I don't know, whatever. 
Yeah, there's always going to be things we do, no matter what, we do these activities because we're intrinsically motivated. We're not motivated by any extrinsic reward like money or acclaim. And it sounds like painting is that thing for you. And I assume at some point you probably got energy from painting, right? So you you leaned into it. You mentioned you don't believe in following your passion, but you do believe in following your energy. Well, you know, and, and therefore live passionately, like live a life of excited and energetic engagement. So we live in our, uh, in a Western society, we live all in our head, the part of our head that talks, 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 talks all the time. We think we can solve every problem by just talking it into our, like into our prefrontal cortex and we'll somehow solve it. Well, that's only a small way of knowing, you know, this way of logically knowing something. We have neurological evidence that the wisdom of the emotions, that the emotions give us information about good and bad decisions. Look at the, you know, the work of Dan Schwartz and some other people who looked at this topic and there's a thing called the amygdala, which is a part of the brain. It's very early. It doesn't talk to the rest of the brain, but it talks to your gut. And that's where your emotional gut reaction comes from. The work of Dan Gilbert on decision-making and how we make good decisions and how we draw on our unconscious thinking, not like Freudian unconscious, but just thinking that we aren't aware of because it doesn't talk to our talking brain. So you got to get good at listening to the other signals that give you information about what gives you energy what might be coherent with your skills and talents. But you got to shut off the talky part because it's so loud. And so we work in the class on developing what we call discernment. And discernment, we say, is making good decisions, discerning, making a good decision with more than just one way of knowing, just your prefrontal cortex and logical pro-con lists. That'll get you so far, but it won't listen to the other information that's available. You have kinesthetic intelligence. Athletes talk about that all the time, being in, in the zone, in the flow, knowing exactly where their body needed to be at, at a moment in time and space. Emotional intelligence, people, if they have a spiritual or meditation tradition, know that there are other forms of communication that they can access. So you got to get quiet. You got to develop a practice about these things. Could you provide an example, maybe a student who is applying these design principles to build their life and they use this technique? of discernment and leaning into their energy? One of the reasons we start with energy is energy is easy to observe. A student comes to my office and says, I got two job offers. I don't know what to do. I said, okay, tell me about the first one. It's Teach for America. And I'm going to go to rural Tennessee and I'm going to work with kids. I'm going to help them learn to love literature the way I love literature and reading. Fantastic. What's your other job offer? He kind of slumps in his chair. He goes, well, it's McKinsey. I did that thing where you helped me learn how to do a, a case study interview and I got the job and it's great. And I'm going to be in the Chicago office and I'll make a ton of money. Yeah, McKinsey. And I go, well, can I tell you what I noticed? He says, sure. I said, when I noticed when you talk about McKinsey, you're all slumped over in your chair and you have no energy and your face looks a little sad, but you're pretty sure that's the right one, right? Because that's what everybody tells you. And then when you talk about Teach for America, you're sitting up straight and your eyes are bright and shiny and you're all excited and you want to talk about those kids loving literature. I just got to tell you, I don't think your body wants to work in McKinsey. I'm not going to make a decision for you, but I got to tell you. And he's like, you're right. And then he says, is it okay if I say no? And I say, well, don't worry about McKinsey. They got kids lined up at the door who want that job. So if you can't bring your best self to that job, you know, do them a favor. Don't take it. But all my friends tell me I'm crazy. My parents said I didn't go to Stanford to become a teacher. And I said, well, what do you want to do? Like, what's the voice in your head tell you? 
every part of his body was telling him exactly what he wanted to do, except for the part, the social and emotional intelligence was all, yes, he had the teacher. And the other part was, but what will people think? And I said, well, I don't ever tell you what to do, but I'll tell you that I notice you have more energy here than there. And I'll tell you one other thing that I've noticed just in general about the pattern of my graduates is that you will never be more idealistic than you are now at 22. So take those two pieces of information, add them to your decision matrix, and go pick something you want to do. And there's some times in your life when those opportunities make a lot more sense too. It gets harder to go do Teach for America after you built up, after you bought the house, you got the two kids. Some of my friends in my generation, it was Peace Corps. And I've got three friends who went to the Peace Corps. Of my 20 friends who went off to college and did other, and went off to grad school or whatever jobs and things. They have the best stories. They have amazing relationships all over the world. I mean, they've been back in the Peace Corps for 30 years or whatever it is, but that's an experience that tends to shape your life forever. And it changed who they were, right? Because what we do changes who we are. And every time I hear their stories, I think, God, I wish I, not, it wasn't even on my radar. I didn't even know that it was a possibility. Boy, that would have been cool. What you do shapes who you are. That's an important theme that runs throughout your book. You point out that we refer to ourselves as human beings, but it would be more appropriate or maybe more accurate to refer to ourselves as human doings. Can you explain that? Well, and you know, it's it's sort of almost like the East-West duality. In the West, we don't ask each other, how's your emotional state? We say, you know, what do you do for a living? What do you do? (laughs) You know, maybe more in the East, it's a little more inner life. What's your inner life about? How are you being? But we've actually reframed that as a cycle. You are being, you do stuff in the world, and in the being and doing, you become. Now you've transformed yourself into a different thing that does the being, doing, becoming, being, doing, becoming. So we're always in this circle. We're always becoming the next version of ourselves. Often it's a small edit or it's the same thing, just do it again. But we're developing mastery of the subjects that we work in, and we're developing a broader understanding. I mean, at my age, I'd say my memory is much less than it used to be in my 20s, photographic memory. But then I've learned that it's not what you know, it's how you put it all together that matters. If you take the time to reflect, if you take the time to think about what you've learned, then this being, doing, becoming, being, doing, becoming, being, doing, becoming cycle over the course of this interview, over the course of a day, over the course of a decade, or over the course of a life, you have the chance to become the person you want to be. In closing, I'd like to come back to happiness. And you say somewhere in the book, I'm looking at the quote here, happiness comes from designing a life that works for you. Can you just reflect a little bit on that in closing, how we can connect this idea of designing and happiness? When Martin Seligman and a bunch of his buddies all got together, they were studying people who were abnormal. And he said, we're not being useful. We're not helping people understand, like, look at these happy people. What makes them happy? So they started the psychology of happiness. And now he's decided happiness isn't really the whole thing. It's really about flourishing and flourishing contains other things than just happiness, it's achievement, it's relationships, it's other things. And so if you understand his model, he calls it PERMA, then you can say, okay, how do I build elements of each of these things? Because they've been shown by psychologists to create a sense of flourishing or a sense of happiness. 
And once you kind of break down the formula, you go, okay, well, I have control over my relationships to some extent. I have control over how I express myself in the world and how the achievements that I go for that I value. By the way, money, no correlation to happiness. Once you have enough money, and certainly if you don't have enough, there's a correlation to misery. But if you have enough money past that, there is no correlation that money makes you happy. So it's just everybody needs to know that and everybody needs to stop the hedonic treadmill of chasing more, 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 because there's just addiction. There's no happiness there. Dan Gilbert at Harvard would say, happiness is not about getting what you want, striving after something and getting it. Happiness is wanting what you have. So certainly there's an element of going for striving and trying to make accomplishments and things happen. But happiness is actually synthesized. It's created by us accepting and wanting what we get. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying you have to settle for bad things or anything like that. In, in our second book, Designing Your Work Life, hey, if you've got a toxic boss or a toxic environment or there's sexual harassment or anything bad, just leave. You don't have time for that. If you can't, leave if you can't or leave when you can. But you can design a better job without quitting. We've got four ways you can do that. We, you can design a better career path by really getting into what is it that gives you energy? What is it that gives you connection to others? This has been a wonderful conversation, Bill. I really appreciate you coming on The Good Life. How can people learn more about your work and get started in designing their life? We have a website. It's designingyour.life. We got tons of videos up there. We just did a series of eight videos of design in the COVID times. Like, how do you apply these principles to designing in a situation where the constraints are really different and really, really pretty difficult for a lot of people? On Twitter, at DYL. And uh, I don't know, we have four or 500 book clubs on the Facebook page. So it's Designing Your Life, the book is the Facebook page. So go to those places and you can find out more. Great. Thanks for being on The Good Life, Bill. Well, thanks for the time. I really appreciate talking with you. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.